Lord Jesus, we thank you for another Lord's Day to come together and worship you, to hear your word. So Lord, we pray that uh, you would prepare us now to hear that word, uh, that we would hear it taught this morning, that we would hear it preached, that we would sing to you, that we would worship you, that we would praise you and pray to you. Lord, this is your day, and we are dedicating this to you uh, by your command. And so we're here now to hear your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and send your spirit to do just that, so that we might be changed by it, and that we would hear Christ. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in mostly Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, so go ahead and turn with me there to Hebrews 10. We are continuing to make our way through the book of Hebrews, and we are currently discussing uh, the issue of Jesus and the Old Covenant. So we're just looking at how Jesus is superior to and fulfills all the various major aspects or characteristics or parts or whatever we want to call it of the Old Covenant. And as promised, today we're going to be talking about Christ and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. All right, And so we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 9, uh, beginning with verse 25. And then we're going to carry over through chapter 10, verse 25. And before we get started, I'm just going to go ahead and read that passage for us right here. Um, But I'm going to start reading with verse 23 of chapter 9, just for a little bit more context. So let me read the passage for us, and then we'll talk about it. So Hebrews 9, beginning with verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly, since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. 
Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should become a footstool for his feet. For from that time, excuse me, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after sin, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think um, when I was uh, really beginning my own study, more serious study of the scriptures and of theology and those sorts of things in general when I was in later high school or early, early college during that area, I was um, profoundly struck by the book of Hebrews. And I think anyone who's read the book of Hebrews has probably experienced the same thing. Uh, and this passage right here was particularly impactful for me. And it remains you know, one of my favorite passages in scripture and certainly my favorite passage in the book of Hebrews. And it's because it so well articulates the relationship between what was going on in the Old Testament and what has happened in the New Testament. And it relates so carefully the sacrifices of the Old Covenant with the one sacrifice of the New Covenant. And, it, and our author does that in such a beautiful and very precise way. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk about this passage this morning because this is my favorite passage in Hebrews. And uh, I'm going to do something a little different, something that I haven't done before. Well, that I haven't done as often. We're going to have three points in our Sunday school session this morning. We're going to have three points. I normally like to have two points, but no, we've got three points this morning. And the first point is the Old Covenant sacrifices. And our author describes those for us in these opening verses of of chapter 10 and the last few verses of chapter 9. And then he describes for us the new covenant sacrifice. And then somewhere around verse 19 of chapter 10, our author breaks into the third section, which is the application. Uh, it makes my job a whole lot easier when I'm teaching or preaching when the actual author just gives the application. Right? So we've got that. 
We've got wonderful application coming in here at the end, offered by uh, the author of Hebrews. So let's look here first then at his, his first section, which is the Old Covenant sacrifices. And our author, whoever wrote Hebrews, is a very good reform person. And I say that because he has five points about the Old Covenant sacrifices, five things he wants us to know. All right. And the first thing he says in verse 25 of chapter 9. Here's point number one about the Old Covenant sacrifices. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So as our author begins to describe the Old Covenant sacrifices, the first thing he says is that the Old Covenant sacrifices were repeated. They were repeated. They were ongoing. They were not definitive. They were not, you know, just once for all. Nope, they were ongoing. They had to be done all the time. And the specific sacrifice that our author uses as essentially the archetypal example of an Old Covenant sacrifice is the Day of Atonement. It's the sacrifice that the high priest would offer once every year when he would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple. And we talked about this sacrifice a little bit last week. It was once a year on the Day of Atonement, very carefully described for us in Leviticus chapter 16. And the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would bring with him into that place the blood of a sacrifice. And he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to atone for the sins of all the people as well as for his own sins. That's what it was for. And that happened once every year. And the reason why the author of Hebrews like, really likes to use that particular example of the sacrifices is because it was probably the most important of the Old Covenant sacrifices. It was the only sacrifice that was offered in the Holy of Holies, the very special place of the tabernacle. All the other sacrifices happened outside the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary or in the outer court on the bronze altar. But this was the one sacrifice, and only once a year, that was offered in the very special presence of God. And only the high priest could do it, and only once a year. So the very greatest sacrifice of the Old Covenant here is being compared to the one sacrifice of the New Covenant. And the first thing our author says about that is that even the greatest sacrifice of the Old Covenant was repeated every year. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is also in verse 25, the second point. And that is that the blood that was offered in that sacrifice was not the priest's blood. You see that? Verse 25, I'll read it again. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. That's the second point about the old covenant sacrifices. And we we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The high priest in the Old Testament or any of the Old Testament priests, when they offered sacrifices, they didn't offer themselves. They didn't slay themselves on the altar. No, they slayed animals on the altar. And so the priests brought blood that was not their own. And even for the very greatest of sacrifices in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, in the Holy of Holies, the high priest still didn't offer himself. He still had to bring other blood, other sacrifice into 
the Holy of Holies. Okay, So that's the second point. Third point, this is in chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay, third point is right there at the beginning of the verse, and that is that the Old Covenant sacrifices are described by the Holy Spirit here as shadows. Shadows of the true forms that were to come. And we've talked about shadows over and over and over again. That's a very important way that our author in Hebrews describes the, the realities of the Old Covenant. They were things that were types. They were things that were shadows. They were things that were pointing to the great things that were to come. Okay? We've talked about that a hundred times. I'm not going to belabor the point. But our author says that, so that's point number three. Now here's point four. And this also comes in verse one. That these sacrifices, second half of verse one, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay? Now that word perfect in the Greek, teleosai, is the word that comes from the Greek word that comes from the same root that means end or goal or completion. Okay? And so what the idea of being perfect here is not perfect as in sinless, uh, at least not yet, but the perfection being described here is the idea of completion. That is, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant could never complete what they were signifying. They could never bring the sinner's forgiveness to completion. There needed to be something greater to happen because they, these sacrifices were imperfect in the sense that they were incomplete. There needed to be more added to them. So they could never make perfect those who draw near. But then the last point here, point number five, comes in verse four. Here's the last thing our author says about the Old Covenant sacrifices, and that is that it is impossible for them, that is, for the blood of bulls and goats, to take away sins. And again, we've said this before. Uh, the author of Hebrews is, in a sense, continually repeating himself. Right? This is not the first time we've heard this. And he's repeating himself because, remember, he's writing to Jews who are being tempted to go back to Judaism. They want to go back to the old way of doing things. And he's like, why would you want to do that? The old covenant sacrifices could never take away sins. That blood was just bulls and goats. Or rather, in verse 3, he clarifies. Now, they didn't take away sins, but you know what? These old covenant sacrifices did have a purpose. And here's their purpose. They were a reminder of sins every year. Now, that doesn't mean that the Old Covenant sacrifices had no spiritual significance whatsoever. Right? But what our author is saying is that fundamentally their purpose was to remind the people of Israel that they were sinners before a holy God and that they needed to come to God with circumcised hearts and seek forgiveness. That was the purpose of the sacrifices, to draw the people to God, to be sort of, sort of a if you will, a kind of visible word telling them, you need atonement. You need someone to be in your place, to take this punishment. It was a de declaration to them 
that they need to come to God for forgiveness. Okay? So that's what he's emphasizing here. It's impossible for those, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins because they were a reminder of sins each year. Okay? Now, that's the old covenant sacrifices. But that's not where our author wants to leave us. He wants to transition us now to the new covenant sacrifice, to Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death on the cross. And just like our author had his five points about the old covenant sacrifices, he's got five points about Christ, about Christ's sacrifice. And they're the same points about the old covenant sacrifices, the same five points, although they're in a little bit different order. So see if you can sort of Think about them in that way here. The first point about Jesus' sacrifice comes in verses 5 and 8. And this is where he says that Christ offers his own body and blood. Now you remember, the old covenant priests, they didn't offer their own body and blood. They offered the body and blood of something else, a lamb or a goat or a bull or something. Here, the author of Hebrews wants to emphasize Christ offered his own body, and he does it by turning our attention to Psalm 40. And listen to what he says here. He quotes Psalm 40 and attributes it to the words of Christ. He puts these words right on Christ's lips. Verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, one of the things that I think is super interesting about this is that if you were, you don't have to do this, but if you were to turn back to Psalm 40 in your Bibles and you were to read Psalm 40, you would notice a little, something a little bit different. The author of Hebrews doesn't exactly quote the Psalm 40 text. The Psalm 40 text reads, it reads uh, in verse, verse 6 of Psalm 40, it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but ears you have prepared for me. Right? And then, so in the, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 40, it says, God prepared ears for him. But then when you come here in Hebrews, it says, a body you have prepared for me. Now, what's going on here? Did the author of Hebrews uh, slip up a little bit? Did he make a mistake? Or did, he, did he not quite memorize the verse in Sunday school the way that he was supposed to? Well, I mean, some people have thought that. You know, some people have thought, well, he just made a mistake here. He, he accidentally put the wrong word down. But no, you see... If you look at all of the ways that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, what you'll actually notice if you compare them, and this is something I really find fascinating, and I do a lot of this while I'm teaching through Hebrews because Hebrews does this a lot, is you will see New Testament authors make slight adjustments to Old Testament texts when they quote them, and not because they're trying to mislead people or because they made a mistake or because they're trying to squeeze the Old Testament into their own interpretive Mode, But what they're doing is they're trying to make the meaning of the Old Testament more clear by making slight changes. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, our author was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And in the Deuteronomy text, it says, let all the sons of God worship God. And then when the author of Hebrews quotes that text, he says, let all the angels worship God. 
So there he's taking sons of God and he's, he's sort of uh, translating the meaning for his audience so that they can better understand what the text is trying to say. And that's what he's doing here. He's making a slight adjustment. In the Psalm 40 text, the text is about David as he is calling out to God and he says, Hey God, you know what? I recognize that sacrifices and burnt offerings are not ultimately what you want. You're not just interested that your people go through the rituals of these things that you've commanded, but you want our hearts. You want us to hear you. You've given us ears to hear you. Therefore, O oh God, I'm going to obey you as it is written of me in your law. That's what David's saying. And Psalm 40 takes those words of David and puts them on the lips of Christ. And then he makes a slight adjustment and says, God not only gave Jesus the ears to hear the commands of God so that Jesus could live a perfect life of obedience. But Jesus was given more than just ears to hear. A body was prepared for him, which includes ears. And it was Jesus' body that was the instrument by which Jesus in this earthly life performed perfect obedience to the law of God so that he could earn righteousness for us. You see that? That's why the author's making this slight adjustment. And it's something we maybe wouldn't recognize unless we had Psalm 40 memorized already. But the, even this slight adjustment, the author's saying, part of Jesus' obedience to the Father is not just that he fulfill the law, but it is that he receive a body and die as a sacrifice for his people. And so in theological categories, this text is teaching that Jesus had both an active obedience and a passive obedience that he needed to accomplish in this life. Jesus' passive obedience was his sufferings throughout all of his life and then culminating in his death. But his active obedience is his perfect fulfilling of the law of God. And so we can see then sort of both facets of the doctrine of justification at work in this text. That Jesus died as the sacrifice and he was prepared for obedience. And all of that coming together here, just a wonderfully rich teaching. You can see why I love this text so much. But that's the first point about Jesus and the new covenant sacrifice, right? He offers his own body and blood. Secondly, second thing that Jesus does is he is the reality and not the shadow, right? Old covenant sacrifices, they were shadows. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus, he is the reality. Chapter 10, verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. There's Jesus coming as the reality in light of the shadow. Third point about new covenant sacrifices. Christ accomplishes perfection of holiness. This is in verses 9 and 11, and let me read them for you and then explain what he's talking about here. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, notice in, in verse 10, you see how it says that by that will, that is, by Christ doing the will of the Father, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay? Now that word sanctified in the Greek text is in the past tense. All right? Past tense means it's already accomplished. And one of the things that's interesting about that is if we were to interpret this strictly speaking as, as uh, very theologically minded people, we'd be kind of confused by that. So I wonder how exactly are we sanctified already? Because last I checked, I'm not very holy in and of myself. Right? I don't know about you guys, but I'm not. I'm not sanctified yet. We await our final perfect sanctification in heaven. And this is where we have to understand something really important. And this is, again, this is where we see justification being highlighted in this text. And that is that when biblical authors use terms, they're not always using terms with modern theological precision. Right? We talked about this in our sacrament series. And Paul will sometimes use the term salvation in a lot of different ways. He'll use the term salvation to talk about predestination. Or it'll talk about justification, or sanctification, or glorification, or adoption, or all kinds of different things. Right? And we saw that in 1 Peter as well, as Peter was talking about baptism. He's using salvation in more of a sanctifying sense there. Well, here, I think it's really important to note the very wise words of one theologian whom I admire very much. And that theologian's name is Campegius Vitringa. You may have no idea who that is, and that's okay. Not very many people have any idea who that is. But uh, I'm a nerd, so I know a lot of random facts that you just don't really care to know about. But the Vitrina uh, was a Dutch Reformed theologian in the early, uh, well, actually more of the late 17th century. All right, so you know, a couple generations before the Revolutionary War. And uh, I've been involved in a very fun, I think, translation project to translate Vitrina's theological dogmatics. And I recently completed it, and I want to read for you just this brief quote that he has. And this is so helpful, and I think it's just really, really good. So listen to what he says here. He says, The word sanctification is often used loosely in Scripture for all the benefits presented to us by Christ. And it not only includes justification, but even glorification. And this ought to be carefully observed. Now, Vitringa was a master of the biblical languages. He was a world-leading biblical scholar and theologian in his day, praised by everybody. And Vitringa, and one of the things I love about his theology is he is so careful about understanding the way that the Bible uses terms. And the way that he understands the word sanctification is he sees that throughout the scriptures, when we see the word sanctify, it doesn't always mean what we think it means. Because when we hear sanctification, we often think that's the process of, of being made holy and conformed to the image of Christ, and doing good works and being holy and all that kind of business, right? And that's absolutely true. You know, scripture uses sanctification in that sense quite a bit. But scripture also doesn't have our modern precision with language. Like it does, it's not concerned about that because it's, it's not an academic textbook. So sometimes the word sanctify here, according to Vitringa, can actually refer to justification. And that's what we have going on right here in Hebrews chapter 10. When it says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, the idea there is justification. 
And the reason why the biblical author doesn't just use the term justification, but uses sanctification, is because of the Old Testament imagery that he's using here. He's talking about sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood and all of this that was all concerned with holiness. And he wants to proclaim to us, it's not through those Old Testament things that we get holiness. It is through the work of Christ. And in the act of justification, when God declares us righteous, that is when there is a legal declaration that we are holy. You see that? And that's why he declares that here. That's why he uses the word sanctification. Because we have been declared holy as a part of our justification. All right? All right, now that may have seemed like a sort of a long-winded technical discussion there, but it's actually really important, and it's a good illustration to recognize we've got to think carefully about the way Scripture describes things and why it's doing precisely the way, precisely what it's doing. It's so helpful to think that through. All right, so that's the third point then about uh, the new covenant sacrifice of Christ, that he accomplishes the perfection of our holiness. And so we have been legally declared holy today, right now, and yet we await our actual true holiness in heaven later. All right? So, fourth point, really quickly. Jesus is offered only once as a sacrifice. All right? That's in contrast to the old covenant sacrifices that were offered repeatedly. We get that. We've talked about that. Let's move on. Point number five, Christ's offering paid for sins. Never heard that one before, right? Christ's offering paid for sins. And, and here's where he, he goes with this. This is verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after this, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. The author of Hebrews basically said the same thing about 47 times right there. Because he wants to beat it into our minds. Christ's offering of himself paid for our sins. And we're not going to have time this morning to get into the application uh, that I wanted to get into. But I will draw our attention to one major application point here. And that is this. It actually comes at the beginning of the text. So we've got to back up just a little bit. It comes in verses 27 and 28. This is a radical implication about this teaching. Verse 27 and 28 of chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, I heard on Christian radio the other day, there was a preacher on there, and a great guy, I'm I'm sure he's awesome in many ways, but he said something that I thought was a little troubling. And what he said was, Christians need to be very concerned with doing good works and living holy lives and being pious because in the last judgment, there's going to be a big screen. 
And God's going to put all of your sins on the big screen for everybody to see. And I was like, well, what happened to your God forgetting our sins in the gospel? What happened to the judgment not being a day of shame for Christians, but actually a day of great joy? Because you see it here, according to our text, the, Im- the radical implication of Christ dealing with our sins on the cross when he offered himself for us is that when we go to the last judgment, our sins are not going to be put on display. God is not going to regurgitate his old memories that he forgot about our sins. No, they have been dealt with. When we go to the judgment, we're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, on the basis of the work of Christ, and we get to walk in with perfect joy. Folks, the last judgment is not a day when Christ comes to deal with our sins. He already dealt with them. Because of his work, when we go to the last judgment, when we go to the day of the Lord, as the Old Testament put it, it will be a day of great joy for us. Because we're wearing the robes of Christ. That's the radical implication of this text. Praise God for this. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice this morning at the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, we, uh, we are humbled by the fact that we can offer absolutely nothing. But Christ offered everything. And he didn't just offer the blood of another, but he offered his own precious blood once for all. And Lord God, work this truth deeply within us through your spirit this morning. Help us to understand it more deeply and to love it more fully and to live it out more genuinely. And prepare us now, Lord, to, out of this great joy that we have in the gospel, to come together to praise your name, to pray to you, to confess to you, and to worship you and hear your word this morning. So we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus.